Well, let's begin this morning, as we often do, by reading our text. We're in Matthew chapter 13. Starting in verse 47, we're going to go to the end of the chapter, verse 52. So Matthew 13, 47 to 52. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Well, these are the final two parables to wrap up Matthew chapter 13. We have the parable of the net or the drag net in some translations and the parable of the master of the house, the house master. These parables are, are separate from one another. They're not twins like the ones we've seen kind of leading up to this point. We've seen a number of parable twins, but these parables teach different truths. The final parable about the master of the house wraps up this discourse and, and moves us into the next section of Matthew. If you look at verse 53, it says, And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And each of the longer messages in Matthew kind of ends with a saying like that. The the verse that we just read, when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it said, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. After Matthew chapter 10, uh, the the mission or the message on missions, Matthew 11 verse 1 says, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to preach and teach in their cities. And so verse 53 wraps up this section, ends this section on the parables and begins our next section of narrative. In the first parable in our text today, it deals with the theme of judgment. And it's actually very, very similar to the parable of the wheat and the weeds. In fact, if you just look back a little bit, look at Matthew 13 and verse 40. It says there, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. Our verse 49 begins word for word the same, so it will be at the end of the age. And if you look back at verse 42 of Matthew 13, the interpretation of the parable of the wheat and the weeds, Matthew 13, 42, it says, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And if you compare that with verse 50 of our text, it's word for word the same and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so this is in many ways a, a repeat of the parable of the wheat and the weeds. And so today our theme is really judgment at the end of the age. Again, verse 40, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, 
So it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so our focus for today is, again, judgment at the end of the age. And this is something that, that many churches and maybe many preachers would try to avoid. You know, preaching on hell is, is out of style. It has a bad name. You know, fire and brimstone preaching, they call it. And some people think that that kind of preaching is outdated. You know, they used to preach that way maybe in the 1950s or maybe early 1900s or maybe some people even go back further and think about Jonathan Edwards or the Puritans in England in the 1600s. Those are the the generations that kind of preach that way. They tell us today that a a more positive message is going to win them these days. And I think many believers and many preachers are somewhat embarrassed about the doctrines of sin, the doctrine of judgment, the doctrine of hell. Maybe they wouldn't outright say it. Maybe they wouldn't admit it even to themselves, but that's the way that they act. You know, there's an embarrassment about the reality of hell. And people think, how can God send such nice people like my unbelieving neighbor or my unbelieving friend to hell forever? And they don't like it that God is so severe, and so they they try to soften God's image. They try to kind of clean him up a little bit and make him look a little bit more friendly. And so many, many churches will avoid this topic almost altogether, or, or if they if they do mention it, it'll just be ever so briefly and ever so softly. And what you won't hear very often, and, and really unfortunately, as I, I hope we'll see today, is what Jesus says so clearly in verse 42 and verse 50, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. See, the Lord Jesus is the foremost teacher on hell and judgment. And I think we know that. I think we understand that. But I I also think many people would be surprised to learn that Jesus teaches on the doctrine of eternal judgment more than any other biblical figure. Now we could draw this teaching from the Old Testament, but but really Jesus is the one who who brings this teaching into focus. It's it's kind of scattered throughout the Old Testament, but Jesus really clarifies it and brings it to the forefront. And so we have Jesus who who loved sinners such that he died to pay the penalty for sin, but he also loved them such that he warned them with the greatest clarity what would happen if those same sinners continued in their sin. You see, Jesus wasn't embarrassed about the doctrine of hell. Jesus didn't shy away from talking about the consequences of sin. Jesus warned sinners to flee from the wrath to come, and he loved enough to tell people what would happen if they continued in their sin, if they refused to repent, and if they did not turn to him for salvation. In fact, every discourse in Matthew, every one of these longer sections of of Jesus' sermons, Jesus' messages, Jesus' words, every one of them has warnings of judgment. And in these passages, Jesus himself is the judge. And I just want to kind of show you this by way of introduction. Let's go back 
And we're going to kind of look through the discourses of Jesus. Go to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, and starting at verses 13 and 14, Jesus says there, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And so Jesus warned that few would enter the narrow gate, and that, and, and that the other way leads to destruction. If you jump down to verse 19, he says, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, a pitcher of hell. In verse 23, Jesus presents himself as the judge who decides who's going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And in verse 23, he says, Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And so Jesus is the judge who's going to decide who enters into this kingdom of heaven. And he's going to tell some people to depart from him. And that's really depart from me into hell. In verses 24 to 26, the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, the one who escapes this judgment is the one who hears and does these words of mine. Whereas in verse 26, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Again, a picture of judgment for those who do not heed the word of the Lord Jesus Christ. Go over to Matthew chapter 10 and look at verse 14, Jesus says there, and if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Jesus is telling his disciples what will happen to those who won't receive their message. And the message, the, what's going to happen to those people is that their judgment is going to be worse than the judgment that the people of Sodom and Gomorrah experienced who were, who were judged with literal fire and brimstone from heaven destroying those villages. But those people, though dead, they're still awaiting the day of judgment when they're going to be judged once and for all. But a worse judgment than that of Sodom and Gomorrah in hell awaits for those who do not receive the message of Jesus' disciples, who do not really, in, in a sense, receive our message, the message that we're still called to preach today. And that's really a sobering truth, you know, it's just, it's really incredible, but this is the judgment that Jesus speaks about. Now, until then, until that judgment day, the world is going to hate us and persecute us. But look at what Jesus says in verse 28. He says, chapter 10, 28, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And then in verse 32, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven, But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. 
And so once again, Jesus is the judge. And what matters on that day, on that judgment day, is whether he will acknowledge us or whether he will deny us before his Father. And so the way that we get him to acknowledge us, according to Jesus, is by acknowledging him in this sinful world, not fearing those who can kill the body, but having a fear of God, the one who has the power over hell. In the next discourse, after Matthew 13, uh, is Matthew 18. Go ahead and, and look over at Matthew chapter 18. Jesus says there that it would be better, and this is in verse 6, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. And so a millstone around the neck and being drowned in the sea is better. Better than what? Well, verse 6 at the beginning, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a millstone fastened around his neck and be thrown into the depths of the sea. And so we have to ask there, well, why is a millstone better? Well, it's not because leading believers into sin is so hard. Actually, it's, it's quite easy to lead people into sin. The reason that it's better is because of the judgment that's going to come for leading people astray. And so it'd be better if you just were dead right now with a millstone and drowned in the sea than for you to, to build up for yourself judgment and wrath for the day of wrath. Look at verse seven. Jesus says, woe to the world. That's a, a, a pronouncement of woe. That's a, a warning of judgment. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptation comes, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the fire of hell. Again, Jesus warning the, the seriousness which which we should take sin. The final discourse in this book is Matthew 24 and 25. And go ahead and turn there. We see these words in the parable of the faithful and wise servant or the faithful and wise slave, Matthew 24 and verse 48. It says, but if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour when he does not know and will cut him in pieces And put him with the hypocrites in that place will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, a reference to the doctrine of hell, to the reality of hell. Look at verse 30, Matthew 25, and then verse 30 in another parable. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then in verse 41 of Matthew 25, The parable of the sheep and the goats, really speaking about the same time as the parable in our text. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. 
For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me naked and you did not clothe me sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, that was just a brief survey of the discourses where Jesus speaks about hell. I didn't show you everything that Jesus says about hell, even just in Matthew, just really some highlights from the Lord's preaching. But what we can gather from this is that Jesus loved enough, even in every sermon that he preaches in Matthew, he loved people enough to warn them about hell. And it wasn't a doctrine, again, that he was embarrassed about. In fact, the doctrine of final judgment and eternal punishment in hell is, is actually good news. It's good news in at least two ways. First of all, it upholds the majesty and greatness of God. You see, God is so great and so worthy and so exalted that to sin against such a God deserves eternal punishment. The greater that one is who, the one who is sinned against, the, the greater the crime. And so if someone attacks maybe a regular citizen, that's, that's bad, but it's, it's even worse to attack a police officer. And to fight against an infinitely holy God and to fight against His good purposes and His ways is worthy of eternal punishment, infinite punishment. You see, God is the authority of this world. And in the judgment, He's going to show His glory and His power in the punishment of the wicked. And so it's a terrible doctrine in one sense, but, but we really only think it's so because we minimize the sinfulness of sin and we underestimate the glory and the greatness of God. And so the doctrine of hell really shows us His glory and His greatness and His exaltedness and, and His worth and how great it is to sin against such a good God. But second, the doctrine of judgment, which again, this, this doctrine is rightfully discussed in theology under the doctrine of God. You see, God is just. He is righteous. He is the righteous lawgiver and judge. And so this is who God is. It's not merely something that God does. It's his very nature to abhor and punish sin. But second, the reason that the doctrine of judgment is good news is because it means our deliverance and our vindication. See, this doctrine teaches us that in the end, God wins. That in the end, God is going to be glorified. That God is going to judge the wicked and remove them from the earth. And in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no sin and no sinners. And that's part of what makes heaven heaven. That, that we're going to be free to enjoy God with, with nothing contrary to Him, with nothing that distracts from His glory, with nobody opposing His purposes, and so that, that we can be there and enjoy God in the greatest way. And so as sad as it is to see the wicked perish, it's, it's really necessary that they either perish or that they repent. The wicked must perish for God to accomplish His purposes and to bring in everlasting righteousness. 
And so the wicked, which is really all of us, all of us are born into this world as sinners and contrary to God. We must either repent and be saved through Jesus Christ, or we must suffer in hell forever. And that's really the the only two choices that there are. You either turn from your sin and trust in Christ for salvation, or this place that we're talking about is going to be where you end up. See, the disciples, they needed to understand what would happen at the end of the age. See, they were expecting the Messiah, and they, and they believed this Messiah to be the Lord Jesus Christ. They were expecting the Messiah to establish the kingdom and to destroy the wicked and to establish everlasting righteousness. But what's been happening so far is that the, the nation of Israel didn't repent. And there was, because of that lack of repentance, there was little righteousness and there was in fact rejection and hostility against the Messiah. And so they were expecting righteousness and they were really getting nothing. Jesus is now teaching them that there's going to be this extended period of time between the the two comings of the Messiah. And and in, in this time, the righteous and the wicked would be together in the world. And so the parable of the net is meant to assure them that in the end, that what they were expecting would indeed happen. That God would one day vindicate His holiness, judge the wicked, and, and remove them so that the righteous could enjoy the blessings of the kingdom and after that, the eternal state. And so the parable of the net is there to assure the disciples that everything they were expecting would happen just wouldn't happen now. Until then... There would be bad fish in the sea, if we can put it that way. And so we're going to look at our text today under three headings. First of all, let's just see the parable itself in number one, what we've called the fishing net, verses 47 and 48, the fishing net. And as always, we should begin by interpreting the parable, just simply understanding it on its natural level. This parable is fairly straightforward. You'll remember that Peter and Andrew and James and John, the brothers, were fishermen. And so this is something, this is a story that would have been quite familiar with them. Again, verse 47, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. And when it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. Now, something about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom program, is going to be like this whole story about a net thrown into the sea and gathering the fish and and sorting them and, and everything in the story. Now, the word for net here, this word is only used one time in the New Testament in this one place. And this is what they called a, a sane net. And I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. I think I am. It's a, a sane net, S-E-I-N-E. Some translations have it a, a drag net, which apparently is the same kind of thing. And what this was, was a net with, with cork on the top part so that it would float. And then it had lead weights on the bottom so that the, the bottom of the net would sink. And so it's a, a net that would float vertically in the water from the ground all the way up to the top of the water. And these nets would be quite long. And one end would be anchored to the shore and then the other end would be brought out, out to sea by a boat and the, and the boat would kind of lay the net in a big circle all the way around. 
And so the, the net would kind of make this big circle and then kind of bring its way back to shore. And it could be done apparently with, with two boats as well to kind of bring a, a big circle in. But regardless, what they would do is they would, they would kind of bring this net closer and closer to shore and everything that was, everything that was out there would be really trapped in the net and unable to escape and then dragged to shore. And the goal was then to make a, a big circle and, and gather all the fish that would be trapped in the middle. And pretty much anything that was too big to fit through the net would be caught and, and brought in. And then once the, the boat came back to shore, it would, it would come back to its starting point and it would be dragged to shore by ropes and it would be full of every kind of fish. Every kind of fish in the Sea of Galilee or every kind of fish wherever they were fishing. Now, some of these fish, and you can kind of imagine just what you would drag in and something like that. At least today, you drag in all kinds of garbage and whatever. But really, some of these fish would have been suitable for market, and some of them would have been not suitable. Some of them wouldn't have even been fish, some of the things that they would have caught. Some of them might, might have been too small. But also, I think what we need to remember here is that some fish weren't suitable for Israel to eat. And so Leviticus 11 and verse 9 says this, just listen to this, Leviticus 11, 9 to 12, these you may eat of all that are in the waters. Everything in the waters that has fins and scales, whether in the seas or in the rivers, you may eat. But anything in the seas or the rivers that does not have fins and scales, of the swarming creatures in the waters and of the living creatures that are in the waters, is detestable to you. You shall regard them as detestable. You shall not eat any of their flesh. You shall detest their carcasses. Everything in the waters that does not have fins and scales is detestable to you. And so Israel wasn't to eat fish without fins and scales. It was detestable. And these would be things like eels, things like catfish, which apparently were in the Sea of Galilee. Um, they had catfish for sure. Apparently there's about 20 to 25 different types of fish in the Sea of Galilee. That's where Jesus is at this time. And so there's 20 to 25 different types of fish and, and maybe they only ate maybe 6 to 10 of those kinds of fish. And so the net in our parable gathered fish of every kind and when it was full, the men drew it ashore and they, they hauled in their catch and then the sorting began. And the good fish were sorted into containers, probably containers with water, and they would be sold live at the market. But bad fish, literally rotten fish, or in this case, really fish that were of no value or little value, they were thrown away, maybe thrown back into the water. And so our parable here is is really pretty simple. We have a net gathering everything, followed by a sorting, the good are kept, the bad are thrown away. Now, we don't have to try to figure out how to interpret this parable because Jesus explains the meaning immediately. We'll call this number two, the final judgment, verses 49 to 50, the final judgment. Look at verse 49. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. As I said earlier, this is very much like the parable of the wheat and the weeds. 
In some parts, it's word for word the same. And the main difference, really, at least at this interpretational level, the main difference is, is the explanation where in, in the parable of the wheat and the weeds, we have that great verse in 43 that talks about the destiny of the righteous. Uh, Matthew 13, 43. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. But the focus in our parable is entirely on what happens to the evil or what happens to the unsaved. At the end of the age, it's going to be just like we have in the parable. The verse there says, so it will be. It it will be thus. And the end of the age is the time when the angels are going to come and make this separation of the righteous and the wicked. And this wording, the end of the age, is used five times in Matthew and really nowhere else in Scripture, Isaiah, or sorry, Isaiah, Hebrews 9.26 speaks about the end of the ages, plural, but five times in Matthew, the end of the age, and nowhere else in, in Scripture, at least in the singular. Um, this phrase, end of the age, was used in Matthew 13, 38, 39, and 40. Look at that passage there. The field is the world. Jesus says, Matthew 13, 38, the field is the world, the good seed is the sons of the kingdom, the weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. And then verse 40, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. And so the parable of the wheat and the weeds use this phrase twice to refer to the harvest, the the gathering of believers and unbelievers for judgment at the end of the age. The disciples put the end of the age together with the coming of the Lord. This is Matthew 24 and verse 3, the beginning of the the discourse, the eschatological discourse, Matthew 24, 25, the Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives, and again in verse 3, Matthew 24, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. And so there's our, our phrase again. Now, people differ about whether the disciples here are asking two questions or three questions, and if these things all go together, but it would seem that the coming of the Lord and the end of the age really happen together. The fifth time we see this wording is in the Great Commission, Matthew 28 and verse 20. Jesus says at the end of that, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so the end of the age is when Christ returns with his angels to make this separation. And I believe that this is going to occur at the end of the tribulation period. Just like we saw in Matthew 25, Matthew 25, again, Matthew 25, 31, it says, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, and so we have the coming of the Son of Man, we have the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And so we see in this passage, we see the coming of the Son of Man, we see the angels, we see the separation, we see the judgment, really all of the same details that we have in our parable. Now in Matthew 25, the goats are also called accursed ones. They're the ones who are not the righteous, and they are cast into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, verse 41. And in our text, this place is called the fiery furnace, or literally the furnace of fire. 
Now, so often hell is described as a, a place of fire, and, and honestly, I'm not sure if these descriptions are literal or figurative. In other words, I don't know if hell is a literal lake of fire, or if it's a, if there's an actual furnace there. Probably, probably more likely, these are picturesque descriptions of the wrath of God. But the picture is most often in scripture of fire. Let's look at a few other passages. Go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Second Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 6 to 10. Since indeed God considers it just to repay, repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints. And so again, we see this picture of flaming fire at the time when Jesus returns. It's, it's a good thing for, for you, Paul says. It's a good thing for the believers because you're going to be granted relief in that moment but from your persecutions. But those who have persecuted you are going to suffer punishment of eternal destruction away from God. And that's what's going to bring the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. Turn to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, look at verse 43. Again, we've read the parallel passage in Matthew earlier already, but Mark 9, 43, Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. Verse 45, if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell And then verse 47, and if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And again, whether this fire is literal or figurative, we do know that those who end up in hell are going to be with resurrected bodies, much like our bodies now, but resurrected bodies which are made to endure forever. Jesus said in John 5:26 to 29 he says for the father as the father has life in himself so he has granted the son to have life in himself and also he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man and so Jesus is the judge verse 28 says do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And so there's going to be a resurrection, a final resurrection and a judgment at the end of the age. And even if this fire is only a metaphor for the suffering of that place, the metaphor is is designed to point to some reality and the reality is the reality of suffering. And so fire must be at least, at the very least, a good picture of the spiritual reality of this suffering in hell. 
And so it's no wonder that Jesus and John the Baptist pled with their hearers to flee from the wrath to come. It's no wonder that the Lord raises up preachers and, and missionaries to bring the gospel to poor sinners who need to be saved and, and trains them and, and equips them to even endure suffering as they preach the gospel to these people and, and are even persecuted by these people, but in order that they might be saved. You see, God has made a way to save sinners from his wrath, but that way wasn't easy. His wrath had to be inflicted. You see, a a just God cannot merely just cover over sin. The penalty for sin had to be paid. Otherwise, God would have been, would have had to really deny his own attributes. See, for God to ignore sin would mean for God to really deny himself. He would have to deny his holiness. He would have to deny his righteousness. He would have to deny his justice. And that's impossible. God cannot deny himself. God must glorify himself. And so God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty in our place. And on the cross, Jesus died bearing the wrath of God for all who would ever believe. The sinless Son of God drank the cup of wrath on behalf of sinners. And so all who take refuge in the Son, and only those who take refuge in the Son, will be saved. And they are called in Scripture the righteous. They are called believers. They are called a new creation. Those who are born again. But their righteousness, our righteousness, it's not our own. It's a, a, a gift of God's grace. Our righteousness is an alien righteousness. It's not our own. It comes as a gift of God through faith. It's the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to us, given to us. But all who receive this imputed righteousness are also by that same faith conformed into the image of Christ so that they are increasingly righteous in their day-to-day lives. And so Scripture calls us the righteous really on, on both accounts. And so no matter how you have sinned, you can be made right with God. All of your sins can be forgiven. You don't have to go to this place of wrath. You can be saved from this place of wrath and your sins can be forgiven and you can be justified and you can be declared righteous today by faith in Jesus Christ. Simply by trusting in Jesus Christ, you can be saved. And so believe on the Son of God and, and you will be saved. And you will be delivered from this wrath. This wrath had to be paid for, but Jesus will pay it in your place. And so be saved from this wicked generation. Believe on the Son of God and be saved. God doesn't delight in punishing sinners, but He does delight in saving sinners. And so I would implore you, if you're here today and you're not in Christ, I would implore you to be saved from this wrath. But whether by Christ or by sinners themselves, in the end, every sin, every sin that was ever committed will be punished and thereby God will show Himself to be a righteous and holy God. He is not a God that puts up with sin. He is not a God that puts up with things that are contrary to His greatness and His glory. They will all be punished whether by His Son or whether by the sinner in hell. Now the final sentence in our verse, and we're back in Matthew 13, verse 50. The final sentence of verse 50, we've already seen it twice before in Matthew. It's, it occurs six times in Matthew, one time in Luke. It says, 
in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There, with the idea of the, the location, there, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Brothers and sisters, we only get one life to serve the Lord. One life to be disciples of Christ. One life to enter in at the narrow gate. One life to walk the narrow path. One life to truly follow Christ and make our calling and election sure. Second Peter 1.10 And if we miss it, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Eternal regret for those who end up in that place. And so don't let that be you. Turn from your sin. Follow Christ with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Whether that gnashing is in anger or in pain or both, we don't, I don't really know, but it just describes the, the horrendous place that this is. And this parable is in it, here to instruct the disciples about what would happen at the end of the age. You see, they needed to know that the evil and the righteous would be separated just as the Old Testament promised. But until then, they would be among the wicked. They would be literally, the, it's, it's literally they'd be in the midst of the wicked. The, the righteous are, are sorted from the midst of the wicked. And so until then, they would be among the, the wicked in the world. And they would be the ones with the only message of salvation that needs to be received in order to be saved. And so I think when we think about how do we apply this, I think one way is that that we need to evangelize lost people. We need to bring the gospel to the world in this age. We need to be diligent to to do all that we can to, to save people from this fate. Charles Spurgeon said, if people must go to hell, I don't have this exactly, but if people must go to hell, then let them go to hell. Let them climb over our bodies. Let them climb over us trying to block the way on the wide gate. And so I think this could be a motivation for us for evangelism. This should be really motivation for us to live for Christ more fully than we do already because even ourselves, even though we're saved, even though we're righteous, we ourselves are going to stand before God in judgment. We're going to stand before God and be rewarded for what we've done in our service to Christ in this age. And so I think this should motivate us that way. I think this should remind us not to envy the wicked. You know, often Psalm 73, Psalm 37, they're they're looking out and they're going, how come the wicked have such a good time? How come the wicked are just prospering and doing good? And here I am suffering and serving and praying and ministering and whatever. And and we can kind of envy those people. But the psalmist in Psalm 73, I think it's Asaph, he, he recognized that's not right. I recognized he remembered death. He remembered what happened in the end. And he realized there's nothing really to envy there. And so I think this should remind us not to envy the wicked, but to live with eternity in mind. And so I think those are the things that this disciple or this parable was meant to do for the disciples. And also to do for us today. Well, the the final parable really, really just is a summary of the whole chapter. It kind of brings everything together. It's kind of even going a little bit in a different direction than our message so far. But this is, we're going to call this number three, the faithful scribe. The faithful scribe in verses 51 
and 52. And so Jesus now asks his disciples a question after all of his teaching, after all of his explaining the parables to them. He asks them this question, verse 51. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. These things here refers to all the parables of the kingdom which began in Matthew chapter 13. And the disciples, they understood them. You know, I, I, they didn't understand everything at this point. There's, there's still many things that they're ignorant of, and, and maybe they didn't understand it to the depth that they one day would, but they, they understood. They understood what Jesus had taught them here, and, and they understood, and because of that, they have a responsibility now to teach these things to others. Verse 52, and he said to them, therefore, and this is kind of this causal therefore, because of this, because you understand, therefore, Every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Again, therefore, because they understood, they, they're like a scribe or they're like a master of the house. And this is the final parable. The, the, it's a parable on teaching parables. And this parable works backwards from most other parables. Most parables begin with the figure and then they tell us what the figure refers to. This parable begins with the reality and then makes a comparison to the figure of the master. And so the reality is that Jesus refers to his disciples as scribes. He says, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom. Jesus refers to his disciples as scribes, and that's somewhat surprising because usually the scribes in Matthew and in the other gospels, they're usually Jesus' enemies. The scribes aren't, aren't typically the, the good guys. It's usually the scribes and the Pharisees who are criticizing Jesus. But here, the disciples are called scribes. And the scribes were experts in the law. They were the interpreters of the law of Moses, and presumably they had a a role in copying Scripture. But there were other kinds of scribes as well in the world. There were scribes who focused on interpreting apocalyptic sayings, who who focused on interpreting mysteries and, and even parables. And it would seem that Jesus is calling his disciples scribes in this sense. They're they're those who understand his dark sayings. They, they understand his parables now. They're the ones who have come to understand these mysteries of the kingdom. Now the word there, trained, every scribe trained, is more literally every scribe who has been made a disciple. Every scribe who became a disciple of the kingdom. And so we are disciples of the kingdom. We belong to the kingdom. We're part of the kingdom. And so we're scribes who understand the kingdom program and we've been made disciples then even of the kingdom. We're disciples of Christ and disciples of the kingdom. And we are like, here's the comparison, we are like a master of the house. And a master of the house, that's the owner of the house, the head of the house, the the leader of a household. And this owner has a treasure. Now remember this word treasure means Something that's stored like a treasure, or it can also mean a place where things are stored. And I think it's better to kind of take it in that secondary sense. This is the the storeroom. And so the owner of the house would have a a room, or maybe even multiple rooms, places where he kept things, places where he kept his goods, places where he kept his treasure. 
And so we should think of this as a, a treasury or a storeroom or a storehouse. And the, the master has stuff. And we can think about it, let's think about it in, in the line of food. You know, the, every master of the house has some food. And so he's got, he's got some new food and he's got some old food. And, and you think, what in the world? You know, think about like fresh baked bread and some fine aged cheese. He's got the new and the old and, and he brings it out of his treasure to, to serve the people in his house. Or I don't know what, you could think about whatever you want to think about. Think about weapons. Maybe he's got a, a bow that his grandpa made and he's got some new arrows that are the latest technology or whatever you want to think about. He's got some new stuff and some old stuff. And that's really all we need to understand here is that there's some new stuff and some old stuff. And it, it's, I think it's both good. It, otherwise, why would he keep it in his treasury, right? So he's got some good stuff for the people in his house. Now, here's how I think we need to understand this. And, and, and I've never really understood these verses before. They've been a little bit of a mystery to me. But, but I think it, it really fits remarkably well with all of Matthew and with, with really our series in Matthew 13. I, I think if we, if we understand these parables then we're like a master of a house who uses both new things and old things. And the old things represent, I think, truths from the Old Testament about the kingdom. These truths, they, they must still be fulfilled literally. There's, there's truths from the Old Testament that haven't been fulfilled yet, and, and we need to continue to bring these things out. I think that's what Jesus is saying here. What God has revealed there in this Old Testament hasn't changed. It, it just simply hasn't happened yet. And so it's, it's gonna happen. And so Jesus says, you gotta bring those things out. You gotta stick with what the Old Testament teaches about the kingdom. But also, now you've learned some new things. Now you've learned some new truths about the kingdom. You've learned about this time gap between the two comings of Messiah. That, that there's this time in which the seed is to be sown and the gospel is to be preached and people can become citizens of the kingdom through repentance of faith. You, you know this now as well. And so you're going to bring, bring that out as well. And then all of it is going to be fulfilled at the end of the age when God accomplishes all his purposes. And so there's some new things and some old things, new truths and old truths about the kingdom. And Jesus wants us to use both. And so we don't abandon the Old Testament when we talk about the kingdom and we don't neglect the New Testament revelation either. Bring out the new and the old. Now, as we kind of think about this for ourselves, I I, I think for ourselves, I think we generally understand the New Testament fairly well. We understand the New Testament teaching on the kingdom. But I think an area that that we could improve is just learning the Old Testament, knowing what it says, knowing the promises that are there. And so we should be a, a people who who rightly understand and interpret all of God's revelation, Old Testament and New Testament. The New Testament is built on the foundation of the old, but it, it doesn't mean that we should neglect the Old Testament. And I think the better we understand the Old Testament, the more we're going to understand the New Testament as well. And so I think that's how we apply this to ourselves. We should be a people of the book. We should be a people of the whole book, Old Testament and New Testament, especially in this area of the kingdom. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time in your word. We thank you for both of these parables. The warning about hell, Father, we, we pray again that you would help us to really take these things to heart, to reach those around us with the gospel. 
Help us to keep eternity in mind and focus on that. And we pray that we'd be right interpreters of your word, that we would be like, like scribes, like disciple scribes who, who have treasures from the Old and New Testament and that we would, we would be like, uh, Charles Spurgeon said of Richard Sibbs, that we would, we would cast pearls with our right hand and with our left. Father, we want to be people that are useful and effective with your word. And uh, we pray that you would work in our lives that way. In Jesus' name, amen.